echo the sentiment that we are glad, I am glad at least, that you are here. I'm enjoying the singing. I like, I, you may have figured out I like to sing. And, uh, you know, it kind of, well, I guess it kind of, I don't know if it runs in the family or not. My dad has always had, up until he got up in years, a fantastic bass voice. I think he sang in a quartet when, back when he was at Montgomery Bible School back in the late 40s. And, uh, and you know, and my older sister has a decent voice. My brother, you know, he, he knows music. And then my little sister is a, you know, she's an opera singer. She's sung at a lot of the opera houses in Europe. Uh, she's got her PhD now. She's an instructor at University of West Virginia in voice. And she, last summer she taught at one of the universities in Austria. I'm not sure which one it was. But uh, anyway, and so she, she's sung the lead in Carmen and all these different operas and all that stuff. And, of course, I'm not into opera singing, you know, and she's my little sister on top of that. So, you know, but, you know, but... Uh, <laughs> Very talented, anyway. But but kind of, there's some of us in the family that that do enjoy singing. And uh, I don't know if I told y'all when I was here last time. I <clears throat> I probably did. I don't know. I have to. I can't keep up with the stories I tell and the jokes I tell. You know, so I try to be real careful. I ought to make notes. I keep record of my sermons. I really ought to keep record of where I tell what stories. But uh, but anyways, there's a preacher and song leader, and they just had a hard time. For whatever reason, the song leader didn't particularly care for the preacher, and they, they were, they just, it was just difficult. For instance, the preacher, at one point, he he preached this sermon on uh, on giving. You know how that we ought to we ought to increase our giving, and the song leader got up and led, Jesus paid it all. And then and then he he let he preached a sermon on commitment, how that we need to we need to get up and get out and be committed to serving God. And the song that got up and led, I shall not be moved. And then you know he preached one on alcohol, and he said, I'd like to take all the beer in town, all the wine in town, all the whiskey in town, and dump it in the river. And the song that got up and led, shall we gather at the river? So the preacher had just you know he was he had just had it you know he 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 knew this was, it was driving him crazy and you know and before he got preach a song that sing ready to suffer you know and so it was just it was just terrible you know and the preacher was thinking and finally he he just got he got so frustrated you know that he mentioned he talked to the elders and he mentioned to the congregation he said brethren I'm I'm I've, I'm just I've had an offer from another congregation to be their preacher and he said I'm I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know if I need to leave or not, but I'm trying to make a decision on whether or not I should go. And the preacher got up and let, oh, why not tonight? And, uh, and so, you know, so the, or the song leader did, and the preacher said, okay. He said, that's it, you know. So the next Sunday he got up and he announced, brethren, I've decided to take that job over at such and such a congregation because I just really believe that's where Jesus wants me to be. And the song that I got up and led, what a friend we have in Jesus. So anyway, I'm glad we're not having that problem. I don't know about Bill and the song leaders, but I'm glad we're not having that problem this week anyway. I want us to look tonight at something that's very basic, but it's something we need to realize and we need to remember. And sometimes I don't think we do. You know, when you look at, let me, let me read for you a few verses from the 8th Psalm. A psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, who have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have ordained strength because of your enemies that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? 
For you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. David understood that even though he might not have figured it all out and he didn't deserve it, God had made man, humans, the crowning glory of his creation. I mean, he, David, we're just a little lower than the angels. And David said, "Why? we're not worth that, God, but this is what you did. You know, you visited us, you made us just a little lower than the angels. And then Jesus, you recall in Matthew 22, <clears throat> when a fellow came to him and said, Tell me, teacher, which is the greatest commandment? Of course, the man, as the Jews were always trying to do, was trying to get him to trip him up and get him to pick one of the ten and elevate it above the other nine. And then the man could have come back and said, See, he obviously is a false teacher. All of them count. You know, but Jesus, he, he, never, he never fell for that. He was smarter than that. So Jesus answered and said, Well, the first and greatest commandment is this, that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. It's in Matthew 22, you can read it, 37 through 39. And then he said, and the second commandment is like unto it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. We have a hard time sometimes believing that God wants us to love ourselves. Am I happy with what I am? Am I happy with who I am? Or do I ever get the feeling that life's not treating me fairly? Well, you know, that other guy over there and this guy, and it's just not fair, Lord, I'm at. Am I happy with what I am and who I am? And if I'm not, and I feel like sometimes life is not fair, then you're not alone. It's a problem that affects a lot of folks. In fact, a lot of people seem to have given a fight. In fact, a lot of people have. Suicide is one of the leading causes of death among young people. That's what blows my mind, like the 18 to 24 age group, before life is barely getting started. And some of these young people have, are hurting so badly emotionally that they figure it's not worth living when they really haven't even learned how to live yet. You know, obviously we have a problem, not just in our country, but in society in general, and mankind in general, with this idea of our own value, our own worth, and we see that same problem in the church. You ever known anybody in a congregation that just couldn't seem to get along? I mean, they're Christians, they've been baptized in the Christ, but regardless, just had such a hard time getting along with folks. It's usually because they don't get along with the fellow in the mirror. That's the problem. When I don't appreciate myself, when I don't like myself, I'm going to have a very hard time liking and loving you. Jesus said we are supposed to love our neighbors like we love ourselves. Too many people do not love themselves and consequently cannot love their neighbor the way that we should. And a lot of times in the church it, it used to express like this. People are baptized into Christ, they come for a while, and then they're gone. You know, they start missing it and next thing you know they're gone and you wonder, so you talk, well, you know, I became a Christian and I kept messing up. I'm a sinner, therefore I'm a failure, so just what's the point? But that's not true. All of us, each one of us is a sinner. 
The only way anybody's going to get to heaven is through the grace of God and the blood of Christ on the cross. I mean, everybody is a sinner. We all are. The difference in a child of God and everybody else is a child of God is a forgiven sinner. A person of the world is just a sinner. We're all sinners. Being a sinner does not make me a failure. What makes me a failure is quitting. I can fall down and get up and God can clean me off through the blood of Christ. It doesn't matter how many times he has to do it. He's long-suffering. Peter tells us that. He will do it as often as I will in a penitent heart turn back to him. Some people have a harder time living the Christian life than others. There's no doubt about that. Some have a different level of temptation than others. There's no doubt about that. You know, people that are coming off of a guy at church, in fact, Sunday, just, or no, last Wednesday night, just showed, no, Sunday night, I'm sorry, because I went to church Sunday night because we'd start at 5 and then came down here at 7.30. Sunday night, he said, have I showed you this? He pulled the coin out of his pocket, and I said, now, which one is that? Is that 20? He said, 22 years of sobriety. And he said, I went to a meeting just this week. He said, I figured out every day, probably I'll go to a meeting every day. You know, there's some people whose temptation is different than mine. That's drinking stability. You know, I did it when I was young. For a couple of years, I did it for a couple of years in my early 20s when I lost, totally lost my mind. But no, I was fortunate. None of that caught on to where I became addicted. But everybody's not that fortunate. You know, some people, it's much more of a struggle with those kind of things. I have my own struggles, and everybody does, but we're all sinners. That that does not make us failures. As I said, the only way that a child of God can fail is to quit. Because as long as I keep getting up, God will keep cleaning me up. He'll keep cleaning me off and help me along the way. And I'll make a few steps and I may stumble again. And I say, God, please forgive me. I'm sorry. And I get up and here we go again. And again and again and again. And how many times that happens doesn't matter. What matters is when this life is over, what road am I on and which way am I going? That's what matters. If I'm on the difficult way that leads to life, somebody else may be way ahead of me on that road towards sinless perfection, but we're on the same road and that's all that matters. And we're both headed in the same direction. I may not be able to walk as fast on that road as some folks, but that doesn't make me a failure. But when I quit and decide to go over and walk the Broadway, that's when I fail. That's when I'm going to fail. I am not a failure. You are not a failure. Just because we mess up doesn't mean we're failures. And the message I want us to get this evening is cheer up. Because you matter. You are somebody. And I just want to give you three reasons why each and every one of us is a somebody. We all matter. We are all important and we should all love ourselves. First of all, you are somebody because of your maker. You know who made us. We are made in the image of God by God. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. God speaking with himself, the Father, Son, and the Spirit, let us make man in our image. And it says he did he created man in his image. He made them male and female. We are created by Almighty God. The God that said, let there be light, and poof, there was light. You know, the God that said, I want the waters to separate and dry land and vegetation to appear, and boom, it did it. Just like that. 
I mean, that God, the God that loves us so much that He sent His only begotten Son to die, we are made by that God in His image. If I insult myself, if I run myself down, now I use self-deprecating humor all the time, and I don't have a problem with that, but if I truly am putting myself down on a regular basis, I'm insulting God. Because you can't insult the building without insulting the builder. God built me. If I'm going to insult me, I'm saying, God, you didn't do a good job with me. Well, that's an insult to God. And I'm not, I don't want to stand before God and say, well, God, you did a lousy job with me. God doesn't do a lousy job on anything. Never has, never will. I may mess up the job he did, but he didn't do a lousy job. You know, but you can't insult the building without insulting the builder, for instance. There's a preacher. He had a meeting out in Texas. And he flew out there and the local preacher picked him up at the airport and he said, Brother, I'll tell you what, let's do. Before I take you to the motel where you're going to be staying this week, he said, let me run you by the house and introduce you to the wife and maybe grab a bite to eat and then I'll take you to the motel. And the visiting preacher said, that's, that's, that's fine. Okay, let's do it. So they're riding down the road and they pull into this nice neighborhood. And the visiting preacher says, Whoa, brother, you live in a nice neighborhood. I mean, all these houses, they are beautiful. Except for that little one down at the end of the road. That one just doesn't fit in this nice neighborhood. And the local preacher said, Well, brother, we did the best we could. Now, how do you reckon the visiting preacher felt? Well, you know, handball against the curb, sit on a dime and dangle your feet. I'm sure he felt kind of silly and low and bad. Why? Because he had just insulted this man. No, he didn't. He said his house was ugly. Yeah, but the man built it. You know, he had it built. You can't insult the building without insulting the builder. Don't sell yourself short. God made you and me. Stop acting like it's a mistake. I'm not talking about walk around, you know, like, you know, with your chest all puffed out and looking down your nose at everybody. That's not what I'm talking about. We get enough of that from politicians. We don't need that from normal folks. I'm talking about a sense of self-value. Because, folks, we will never be able to be humble, not like Christ was, unless we know who we are and we understand our value. You know, I'm convinced that next to teaching our children about God and the truth of how to get to heaven, the next most important lesson I can teach my children and my grandchildren is their self-worth, their value before God and me and everybody else. Because a young person that knows who he or she is that understands that he or she has value because of who they are, if for no other reason, that young person does not feel compelled to go along with the crowd because they don't have to fit in, because they know who they are. But a young person who doesn't have that sense of self-esteem feels like they have to be appreciated and accepted by their peers, even if their peers are doing something that they know they shouldn't do, and they tend to go along with the crowd. Why? Because that's just what you do. You don't have the intestinal fortitude, if you will. You don't have that sense of self-worth to be able to stand up and say, I don't have to do that. 
and they can make fun of it, and you can say, it doesn't matter to me. You know, I'm, we, we got three children, you know, two of them, man, you had to stroke them and, and try to build them up. Our youngest, Heather, she, you know, she was just one of those, man. It didn't matter to her. You know, I mean, she's sweet as she can be and had all kinds of friends and people love her to death, still do. But, you know, if her friends wanted to do something and she didn't want to do it, she said, I'm not doing it. And they go, what's wrong? She said, hey, you want to do that? I don't need you. I don't remember when she was in high school, and well, actually going away to college at the University of Alabama, you know, she's one of these that, I mean, I'm a preacher, so you know, you know, I'm not rich. But she could put on a night dress and, you know, at the time, tie that sweater, you know, around her neck, and she looked just like the preppies that, and her friends, several of them drove Mercedes, their parents were multimillionaires, and she didn't care. She drove a little 1994, I think it was, Chevrolet Corsica, that my mother-in-law had given us. It was a former TVA car that her husband had had when he passed away. That's what she drove. And guess where they went a lot of times when they went out together, all she and all her buddies? Guess what car they rode in? Half the time they rode in hers. Because they liked the way it was a little peppy and picked up and all this stuff. And the others, they're riding around in these Mercedes convertible sports cars. She didn't care. You know, she was pretty easy, thank goodness. We needed one. But anyway, the point is that, you know, we need to teach our children, and some children are different. I mean, it's just like with ours. They all grew up in the same house, but they're just different. Different personalities, different temperaments. That's why the Bible says in Proverbs 22.6, train up a child in the way he should go. And you can have two, and I guarantee you, they both won't be going the same way. It's going to take different stuff for different ones. You know, with four of us in my family, you know, my sister came along first, and so I'm sure, you know, that there was kind of, let's be kind of strict on her, you know. So they, And then my brother comes along, and they move the other way. You know, little old Bill, he's perfect. He can't ever do anything wrong. He's just lovely. He's just wonderful. And then they figured out maybe that doesn't it do it. So then I came along, and I got whipped every week. I think it was like, just in case, you know. But I'm sure I deserve a whole lot more than I got. But I guarantee I got more than any of those three by a long shot. And then my little sister comes along four and a half years after me. They never laid a hand on her in her whole life, you know, and it shows. But that's another story. But anyway, the point is, children are different. I need to impart to them the gift of self-worth. You know how Jesus could get on his hands and knees and wash the feet of those apostles that night in that upper room in John 13? Even Judas, who he knew was going to betray him in just a couple hours? You know how he could do that? Because he knew who he was. He knew that even though he was doing a job that normally is menial and a servant does it, he could get down on his knees and wash their filthy feet and not be any less of a man than he was when he was sitting on the Sermon on the Mount and instructing all those people. Same guy. Why? Because his worth was totally dependent, directly dependent on his relationship with his Heavenly Father. And the jobs he did here, and that's his point, when he told his apostles, he said, what I'm doing, I want you to learn. Well, what do you want us to learn? I want you to learn to do whatever needs to be done and have a value of yourself so you can do it. And even if people make fun of you, you don't feel any worse about yourself because you know it needs to be done. You know, God made you. That makes you somebody. But then there's a second reason. Every bit, maybe even more important in my mind as to why you are somebody. Not just because of your maker, 
But secondly, you are somebody because of the price that was paid for you. The price that was paid. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. Don't you know that you don't belong to yourself anymore? You have been bought with a price. Talking about Christians. What's that price? So Acts 20, verse 28. The church which Jesus purchased with His own blood. Folks, as a child of God, I have been bought by the lifeblood of the Son of God. That's a pretty high price that God decided I was worth. And you too, all of us. I matter. You are somebody. Because Christ died for you. If you want to determine the value, the worth of something, it's determined by the price that's paid. You wonder how much this coat's worth. Well, it's worth whatever somebody's willing to give me. I don't know what I paid for it 100 years ago when I bought it, when it fit, but you know, I, I don't know what it's worth, whatever somebody would be willing to pay. That's, that's how you determine worth. I got a buddy that's a preacher, Jerry Barber. He, he's a, he does interim work now all the time, but many, many years ago when he was a central in Dalton, he told the story about he, he had wanted a, back, in, back then, you know, you could buy, do you remember these Bentwood rocking chairs? Had the cane seats and the Bentwood, anyway, he wanted one of those. But Jerry didn't want to go, you know, get a brand new one if he could avoid it, because I'm not saying he's tight, but he does squeak when he walks, but now that he's in his retirement years, that's a benefit. But anyway, the point is, he looked in the Sears Roebuck catalog. You remember those, right? I mean, I mean, when you actually ordered something out of it, not when it was in the little building out in the backyard, right? Anyway, yeah, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, then never mind. But anyway, the point is that he looked in the Sears Roebuck catalog and he found out what a brand new Bentwood rocker would cost. And he said, okay, before I go buy a new one, I'm going to check the one ads in the paper and see if there's any auctions or estate sales or anything like that that might. And lo and behold, in a week or so, he looked and there was this estate sale advertised and it had a listing of some of the items and one of the items available was a Bentwood rocker. And he said, all right, that's here in Dalton. I think I'll go. So that Saturday morning he went and he looked at the rocking chair and he said, okay, it's in good shape. I'm going to bid on that thing. So when that thing came up for bid, you know, auctioneers rattling on and you know, Jerry puts in a bid, another guy bids, and young lady over here bids, and a young lady over here bids. And you know, Jerry, I mean, Jerry's Jerry, so he knew what a new one cost. Well, he wasn't going to bid that much, so he had a limit. Well, in just, uh, just all like just a couple of three bids, they were at his limit. So he hushed. And next thing you know, it's these two young ladies. And one of them's over here, and she bid it up, and this one over here raised her and raised her. Finally, one of them bought it. And she paid more than what the brand new one at Sears cost. And Jerry knew that. So him being a preacher and being curious, he thought there might be something in this. I want to find out what the deal is. So he went and he talked to the young lady that bought the chair. And he said, ma'am, he said, I'm just curious. Are you aware that you paid more for that used rocking chair than you could have bought a brand new one at Sears? And she said, absolutely. He said, well then, I don't understand. He said, would you help me, would you explain to me why you were willing to do that? And she said, oh, sure. He, she said, you were bidding on a rocking chair. He said, that's my cousin over there. We were bidding on memories of our grandmother rocking us to sleep in that chair. See, the value of that chair was worth more to her. And value is determined by whatever somebody is willing to pay. 
This story came out in Reader's Digest many, many years ago. I think back in the 70s. There was South Sea Island, and they had an, they had an unusual custom. Whenever a young man wanted to marry a young woman on the island, they would go to her father and offer to pay for her hand in marriage with cows. Like, mm, cows. You know, moo cows. And so, you know, the most that had ever been paid for any woman was four cows. Guys, look at your wife. You reckon she's worth four cows. But anyway, well, you don't answer that. But the most that was ever paid for any woman that anybody could remember was four cows. Well, there was a young man that grew up on that island and then he left. And he went off and he, he did pretty well for himself. But he was wanting to get married and he wanted to go back to his island to find a wife. And so he moved back to this little South Sea island. And in the meantime, there was this young lady that was marrying age. She was old enough to be married. But she wasn't married yet. And nobody was interested. And her daddy was worried to death. Because she was so shy. She just wouldn't talk. When the family had walked the streets of the village, she'd just kind of shuffle along behind them with her head. If somebody spoke to her, she just, you know, she would just, couldn't make, just so shy, so backwards. And her dad was thinking, oh man, how am I, he said, who's going, how do you pay half a cow? He said, how am I ever going to get this girl married off? Well, for whatever reason, Johnny Ring decided, that's the young lady I want to marry. And he went to her father, and he said, sir, I will pay you eight cows for the privilege of marrying your daughter. Well, the father's like, yes, sir, eight cows. That's more than anybody had ever been paid for a wife in the history of the place. Twice as much. Well, they got married. And they would walk down the street of the village, and she would walk a couple of steps behind her husband with her head down, just like she always did. But a funny thing started happening. She started hearing people whispering. When they'd walk down the street, she'd hear somebody say, Did you know he paid eight cows for that woman? Can you believe it? Twice as much as anybody's ever paid. He feels like that woman's worth eight cows. And she'd keep walking. And we'd go, there goes an eight cow woman. You know what happened eventually? She raised her head up. She started walking beside her husband. She spoke to people. She began to walk and talk and act like an eight cow woman. Because that's what was paid for her. Folks, we are one cross people. We need to act like it. We need to quit selling ourselves short. Know what God knows we can do. Put on ourselves as much as we can the value that God gives us. And he proved it when he demonstrated his love for us, Romans 5, 6 through 8, by letting Christ die for us while we were still sinners. We are one cross people. But then finally, we're all somebody because we're all made out of the same stuff. Every human being on the planet is made from the same stuff. You know what that is? Dirt. And the Lord God formed Adam from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. Genesis 2.7, then Genesis 3.19, from dust you came to dust you shall return. Years ago, you know, you used to hear that pretty often at funerals. From dust thou art, unto dust thou shalt return. Little boy went with his mom and dad to a funeral one day. 
heard that preacher from dust thou art to dust thou shalt return. They came home. They had hardwood floors. And this is back in the day, you know, when the old bed had springs up underneath it. And that little boy was in his room looking for some toys. And he's looking up under his bed and all these dust bunnies up on there. And he came running out and he said, Mama, Mama! He said, there's somebody under my bed that I can't tell if they're coming or going. You know, so, I mean, we are all made out of dirt. We are going to go to dirt. Paul said you have this treasure of the gospel in earthen vessels. That's a fancy way of saying we carry around the message of salvation in dirt jars. Every single one of us is a temporary body with an eternal soul on the inside that will live somewhere forever. Either living with God in heaven or existing in a constant state of perishing and death in hell. But we'll never, once we come into this world, we will never cease to exist. And neither will anybody else on the planet. We are eternal souls. And in our day and age, man, with computers, I'm telling you, it's like everybody's a number. You know, what's your, what's your pin code? What's your, you know, your, your, that little three-digit code on the back of your card? I need that. What's your credit card number? What's your social security number? I need this number. I need that number. I need this number. You know, we're more than numbers. It's like a guy that got a phone call. Two o'clock in the morning. He said, you've got the wrong idiot, your number. I mean, that, you know, that's the way we are sometimes. We, we are more than numbers. We're people. We are eternal souls. Let me give you an illustration. A couple of them. There was a young man. He's a freshman in college. Just kind of give us an idea of how folks that we think are so, you know, that they're just people like us to a great extent. Anyway, this young man was a freshman in college. He decided that he, because he came kind of from a family that had been kind of involved in politics or wanted to be, and kind of, you know, and so he decided he wanted to run for freshman class president. There were 35 people on the ballot. He lost on the very first round of voting. He didn't even make it to the second round. You know what his name was? John Fitzgerald Kennedy. There was another young man who failed the third grade, and in fact, he had a paper out for a while, and they fired him because he just couldn't do a good enough job. You know who that was? Robert Kennedy. There was another young man that loved to draw. I mean, he just, he, and he just believed with all his heart. He said, man, if I could just get to Hollywood, I believe somebody would buy my drawings. Well, he finally moved out there. He was so broke, he had to rent this apartment that was infested with mice. But a few years later, that young man and one of those mice became real famous. Now, what do you reckon it was that made Walt Disney into the media mogul, multi-millionaire, you know, well-known guy that he was. You think it was one of the several times that he had to declare bankruptcy along the way? You think it was a couple of times when he had nervous breakdowns? What do you reckon it was? They're just people. And it doesn't matter how much is in the bank account or how many degrees are after their name or whatever their important position in society may be. They're just like me. They are an eternal soul wrapped in a temporary body that desperately needs the truth of God's love. Everybody. We're all made out of the same stuff. You are somebody. God made you. 
Christ died for you. And after all, we're all made out of the same stuff anyway. Back in 326 B.C., Alexander Campbell, Alexander Campbell, Alexander the Great, I'm sorry, Alexander Campbell came on a couple years later. Alexander, boy, the Baptist would have loved that one, wouldn't they? Alexander the Great, sorry about that. Oh, that's going to be on record, isn't it? Oh, well. Alexander the Great was in his world-conquering tour. He had conquered pretty much the known world, and now he was all the way over in what we now know as modern-day India. He had gone that far east, and he came up against a kingdom. The king's name was Porus. And King Porus had an army that was unbelievably loyal. And I mean, these men fought till the last drop of blood. And finally, just through sheer numbers, Alexander's army overcame King Porus's army. He lost, Porus lost 12,000 men trying to fend off these Grecian invaders. And finally, Alexander conquered that kingdom. And so, he had King Porus in chains. And he brought him before him. Now here's Alexander the Great, the most powerful man on the planet. At the time, a sovereign ruler, all he had to do was say, cut off his head and your head would be gone and there's not a man on earth that would have done a thing about it. He brings in Porus in chains. And he says, Porus, he said, I'm a soldier, you're a soldier. Out of respect for the loyalty that your army showed in fighting against my army, I'm going to grant you one request. How would you like to be treated? What would you have said? Here's a guy that can take your life at any moment. He's got you, he's, he's already whipping your country. Well, would you, just let me live. Just give me a little hand over here. Just... No. Porus, as best he could under those chains, he straightened up, he looked Alexander square in the eye, and he said, Alexander, I am a king, and I want to be treated like one. And so he was. He took the chains off, his royal robes back on him, and made him the king of his kingdom, a vassal kingdom in the Grecian Empire. Folks, Revelation chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and has made us kings and priests, to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. If I have obeyed God, if I have put on his Son in baptism, then Jesus says, I'm a king. I'm a king. God will treat me like a king. All I have to do is ask for it and act like it. I'm not talking about haughty. I'm talking about a sincere knowledge of how much God thinks of us. How much he has put into each one of us. And for us to sell ourselves short and say, well, I can't do that. I can't do this. No, I'm not able to. No, that's not. God knows better. Act like who we are. We've been bought by Christ on the cross. We need to act like it. God wants to treat us that way. He has in mind for us to live in many ways a royal life in his service. But I got to believe.
I've got to believe in me like God does. I've got to know that I'm worth something. That I am somebody. And then when the world attacks me and ridicules me, it'll roll off like water on a duck's back and I'll keep on going. Why? Because I know that God loves me. And that He's done all this for me and continues to do all this for me. But I've got to believe it. Maybe the step in that direction tonight would be to put on Christ in baptism. Galatians 3, 26 and 27. We're children of God by faith, for as many of us as were baptized into Christ did put on Christ. Have I been baptized for the remission of my sins? Acts 2, 38. If not, then I am definitely living below the standard of life God has in store for me. God wants me to live a life sublime, above the fray of the normal worldly life, and live on a plane that the world really doesn't even understand. It's a peace that passes understanding. Philippians 4, 6 and 7. And I can have that. But a big part of that is understanding how much I matter to God. And when I do, then I can know I can serve in any capacity. I can mow the grass, I can dig ditches, I can wash feet, I can shine shoes, or I can preach, or I can be an elder, I can do whatever it needs to be done. The world may say, oh, you're better than that, you're above that, don't do that. I know better. And it has no effect on who I am. Because I'm serving God. And God knows who I am. And I know who I am. And so when I get there, to that point, then I can indeed love my neighbor as I love myself. If you need to respond this evening to the Lord's invitation, if you want to decide to follow Jesus, if you haven't decided that already, then just come down front while we stand and sing.